0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. One of the things that I say in every wedding that I perform um, is that nothing is easier than saying a few words, and nothing is harder than living them day after day after day. A couple can stand before me and they can promise certain things to one another. They can repeat after me. They can say their I do's and all of those things. Nothing's easier than saying those words, but nothing is harder than living them day after day. Um, And it shouldn't be lost on us that the same thing is true in worship. Nothing's easier than showing up and sitting down and standing up and saying words, singing words, uh, some that you are very familiar with. You can sing them while you're thinking about the crock pot at home or where you're going to go to lunch. Um, But nothing is more difficult than living those truths day after day after day. And so it is also not lost on me. that um, many of you have been here um, week after week after week, and it's crowded, and you keep coming. I know there may be other churches where you would find it more comfortable. The seating is more comfortable. There's more elbow room and all of those things, uh, but you're here. And um, thank you. Also, um, when a preacher doesn't get to preach for three weeks, there's a lot pent up, okay? So, I hope that you're not too hungry. Let's go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. It was actually in December of last year that we started a sermon series through John's Gospel. Uh, We called the first part of the series... Person of interest in the first part uh, of the series took us through the end of May, really, and covered chapters one through six. Um, then we hit the pause button uh, for the summer uh, to look at ten different psalms and I'm so grateful for those who have very capably filled the pulpit over the last three weeks uh, I Make no mistake about it. I, I do not pretend that I am the only one through whom God can speak to you through to us, and uh, they have done a magnificent job. Jace and Kyle, uh, one of our missions partners um, and Chris last week all did a great job, and I so appreciate their ministry. Um, I do want us to rewind just a little bit to pick up kind of where we left off here in john 's gospel and Uh, Maybe some of you are really new to the church. Maybe this is the first time that uh, you've heard me uh, speak. Um, But I want to remind you that John doesn't merely write this gospel uh, to inform or to entertain. Uh, We can summarize John's thesis in one word, and that's the word believe. He says, I've written this book introducing these particular accounts so that you might believe. John witnessed nearly three years of stories and sermons and conversations walking with Jesus in his earthly ministry, but he didn't include them all, clearly. There's so much more that could have been written. He selected certain ones, the ones that would help us believe. The current religious culture in America uh, loves to talk about belief and believing Uh, Those spiritual buzzwords are often used so generically that they end up lacking real meaning. Uh, Contemporary spirituality kind of trumpets this idea of not necessarily belief in an object or a person, but rather belief in belief. It kind of goes like this. It doesn't matter who you believe or what you believe. All that matters is that you believe. There's belief in belief. (laughs) And John's gospel doesn't call us to believe in belief or to put our faith in faith itself. His teaching on belief is much deeper, much more robust, infinitely more life giving than any modern pop culture philosophy. And in the course of 21 chapters, John will uh, answer three very fundamental questions for us Why do we need to believe? What does it mean to believe? And what do we need to believe? And another important aspect of John's call to believe is that we are invited to believe in Jesus Christ, the person. Not merely his message, his teaching, his example, or his challenge to live in a certain way. As important as all of those things are, we are called first and foremost to believe in him. To believe in him. This was the intellectual and the moral crisis that was presented to all kinds of people in John's narrative here, many of whom responded with belief, complete trust in the person of Jesus Christ. You'll find a lot of people today, even in, in our culture, who will say, well, I, Yeah, I believe in the teachings of Jesus. I mean, he was a revolutionary leader, he was a great teacher. He presented this pretty amazing moral code, they might say. But they've never placed their faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Those are two very different things. In other words, John's account of Jesus' life and ministry on earth is no mere biography. The Gospel of John is an invitation to believe in the Son of God, to become his disciple, to deepen our understanding of his identity and his mission, to grow in maturity and to join him in intimate fellowship. Now, if you've been with us through this series, and maybe if you're new, let me just kind of catch you up a little bit. John begins in eternity past when he says, in the beginning was the word. Jesus has no beginning. He is eternal God in the flesh. And so in the beginning was the word and the word dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, became flesh. We've already seen Jesus, uh, the performance of Jesus' first public miracle in the turning of the water into wine. We've seen a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus in John chapter three, where he told him very clearly, you must be born again. Your religion won't save you. And it was in that context of that conversation that we find the the words that we are probably most familiar with in John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you see that word belief there, belief in the son of God. But as we've made our way through those first six chapters, we've seen something change a bit. We've seen more opposition along the way. And in fact, in chapter six, verse 66, oddly enough, I'm not uh, necessarily into uh, the extent of numerology that maybe some people are, where they even take the verse divisions in our English Bibles and try to make them say something that they really don't. But it is kind of odd that chapter six, verse 66 says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So as Jesus does more teaching and he performs more miracles and all these things, we see people becoming more and more divided over who he is and even his message. And we're going to see that continue here in chapter seven. In chapter seven, what we find is Jesus and the world. It's a question that that we need to wrestle with in the modern world. How are we as followers of Jesus Christ supposed to relate to the world around us? And you see different believers, different followers of Jesus, different churches even who take a little different position on these matters. And and, and what does it look like? Some want to hunker down and view the world around us as the enemy. It's us versus them. So we hunker down and we want to shoot arrows of condemnation at the world around us because they are not like us. And if we're not careful, we can develop this ideology where we want them to become like us before they become like Jesus. We want them to embrace our values, want them to embrace uh, our political positions and all of those sorts of things without ever truly fully understanding the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and having their lives transformed by that. So let's pick it up in verse number one of chapter seven this morning. I hope that you'll follow along as I read. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths or tabernacles was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, who is he? Or where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The first thing I want us to notice from verses 1 through 5 today in our text is is this concept, this idea of of interacting with the world. What is worldliness, and why is it a problem? Some of you, like me, maybe grew up in what I would call a tribe of the broader evangelical church or the Orthodox Christian church, uh, where this was a subject that came up frequently. Uh, I grew up in a context of the church where there was a, a lot of spirited preaching about worldliness. Uh, and, and what does that look like? And typically it came with a a rather lengthy list of things that we don't do, right? And so as a result, a lot of people grew up thinking that Christianity, uh, and the Bible was pretty much just a, a rule book. It's a lengthy list of things that we do and don't do and all that, you know, we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't grow with girls who do, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, Maybe you kind of grew up in in that kind of a context, okay? Uh, And so you heard this talk about worldliness. Um, uh, One of the major themes of John's gospel is how Jesus interacts with the world and how we as his followers, his church, should interact with the world as well. So he calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. And it's, it's reflected very clearly in his high priestly prayer, which we'll find in John chapter 17, later in our study of John's gospel. But sadly, the church has not always done a very good job of living out this calling and following the example of Jesus. The illustration that we often go to is that of a boat. A boat is made, designed to be in the water, but not of the water, right? Right? So if if your boat is in the water, that's good. That's what it's designed for. It's to go across the top of the water to get you to that, you know, honey spot where you catch fish or whatever you might be doing. But when the water gets in your boat, that's a problem. Had a friend a number of years ago who bought a new boat. He invited me to be a part of its maiden voyage out on Lake Louisville. And so, man, we start out and we're doing pretty good. And suddenly I look down, I'm like, hey, it's kind of squishy in here. He's like, man, I forgot to put the plug in. Like, that's a problem, bro. Like, I, I, you know, you don't want the... And it's the same way with us in the world. We are to be in the world. We live in this world. We're just not to be of the world. And I know it's much more complex than that. There's so much nuance to this conversation. And, and I would say this. In his critique of the church and pop culture, there was an author by the name of Ken Myers uh, who wrote the book Blue Suede Shoes and All God's Children, He criticizes the Christian subculture and says the church in America is separating itself and hiding from the culture in many ways while imitating it at the same time. And in doing so, he says this, the church is in danger of growing ever more and more like the world while not exerting any influence over the world. And so in a reversal of the call of Christ, the church runs the risk of being of the world while not even being in the world. What exactly does it mean for the church to be of the world? What is worldliness? Why why is it a problem? And if it's a problem, how can we fight against it effectively? Understand this, worldliness, from a biblical perspective, I believe is this, it's adopting the values, standards, priorities, and practices of the world rather than those of Christ. Sadly, many of those who have recognized this problem of worldliness have responded to it in a wrong way. Many have responded to it with legalism, adding restrictions on top of God's law, much like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, taking kind of an external life management, moralistic approach to combating worldliness. As long as I don't do certain things, then I'm good. I'm better than you. I'm different from you. And so they, they take that kind of perspective to it. In today's text, we see how Jesus responded to the world's agenda, how he responded to the world's unbelief, their hatred even, and the divisions uh, that we often find in the world itself. Now, the passage today picks up about six months after the feeding of the 5,000. And remember Jesus' bread of life discourse there, where he said, I am the bread of life. In other words, I, I bring you complete satisfaction, not just physically, but spiritually. And, and there was some teaching and controversy there in John chapter 6, and it's why we see the division that we've already kind of looked at there. Now, we know this because John chapter 6 takes place during Passover time in the spring. And now here, John chapter 7 picks up at the the Feast of Tabernacles with the Feast of Booths uh, in the fall. And so we've basically gone from April to October uh, while we took our summer break in the Psalms, okay? Um, Now, during these months, Jesus remained in Galilee in the northern part of Israel, avoiding... Judea and Jerusalem because the Jews were seeking to kill him. I would say that's a pretty good reason to avoid those areas, right? I mean, if I knew that, you know, the people in Howe had it in for me and didn't, you know, I might avoid Howe, okay? Uh, I I know that the people in Howe are very nice and I I like to go eat at Abbey's and all all those things. So I'm just an example. Okay. Now during these months, then Jesus remains in this area. And that's where we find kind of a description of the world's agenda in verses one through five, because the line of questioning and, and the way of thinking from Jesus' younger brothers here reflects the world's agenda. And I want you to see it. These men were most likely the younger sons of Joseph and Mary. And include two men who would later become key leaders in the early church, James and Jude. They were actually the authors of, of two New Testament books by the same name. And so at this point, they were certainly not yet church leaders and, 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 and even believers for that matter. So their questioning reflects the world's way of thinking. And what are they saying? They're saying, Jesus, you need to get yourself out there, man. Like, like you're doing these amazing things. Yeah, sure enough, they don't deny that. But like you got to get in front of the people, man. Like you, you can't do these things in this isolated area. And especially, you need to capitalize on this, this feast time. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people in Jerusalem. It's an exciting time. You need to make an appearance. And so you, you see this philosophy uh, in, their, in their line of questioning. So they're saying he needs to go where the people are while they're excited, and he can clearly show them miraculous signs and win their support. They think Jesus needs to make more strategic campaign stops, in other words. They think he needs to do a better job of building his platform and his popularity. But was that what Jesus was really about? No. Jesus wasn't about platform building. And so they, they, they may be relatively simple men, But they knew enough about how the world works to know that people who want to be known and followed by multitudes don't hide away in Galilee while huge crowds are gathered in Jerusalem. That's just not smart politics, right? So Jesus is careful to tell us why, or John is careful to tell us why Jesus' brothers speak to him in this way. They don't yet believe. They don't yet believe in him. They don't believe him to be the Messiah, to be the Christ. It's clear enough that this kind of worldly, political, savvy way of thinking does not arise from faith, but from unbelief. Now, we see this being lived out in the world in which we live. Because we live in a time when it's much easier for someone to build a a platform. I mean, with social media and all those things, it is so much easier to put yourself out there to, to, to do certain things so as to create a following and that kind of thing. And that's why I think we're also seeing in certain, in certain places within the broader church that you've got these people who've built this amazing platform, and they've got hundreds and even thousands of followers, but the depth of their characters can't support the platform. That's the problem. they become super popular but not so popular with God. I think, you know, the depth of their character just isn't there to support that. And so this is, this is just a glimpse into the world's agenda. All right. Now let's look secondly at the world's hatred because the way Jesus responds to his brothers is interesting and probably a bit unexpected. Notice, look at verses six through nine again in our text. It says Jesus said to them, "My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come." After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And so, what does Jesus mean by this by this phrase, "My time has not yet come?" Is he referring to the time of his crucifixion? Maybe. Sure. But in John's gospel, Jesus usually refers to that time as my hour or the hour and not my time. So it's possible, many commentators would say even probable, that Jesus means here my time for going up to the feast has not yet come. So when he says, I'm not going up to the feast, he means I am not going up to the feast yet, or I am not now going up to the feast. Now, it's still the case very clearly that Jesus needs to be wise about the timing and the manner of his going up to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, because it's not yet time for his decisive and final confrontation with the religious leaders, which Jesus knew was coming. Jesus clearly knew his mission. He did not come to this world expecting to be broadly, widely accepted by all, okay? He he knew that there was a confrontation on the horizon. And so Jesus tells his brothers that they are free to go on up to the feast at any time because the world cannot hate them. Why? Because they're part of the world. They're, as unbelievers, they are on the side of the world. So they have no reason to plan carefully to avoid a confrontation with the world, Now, Jesus' language here reminds me of the way that he instructed his disciples when he sent them out on mission. And this is where the rub comes in many times with some of us. Jesus said to them, he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent or harmless as doves. Jesus also means something else here. He is waiting on his father's timing. He will follow his father's agenda and timing and not the agenda and the timing of the world. So thus far in our text, there are two lessons that become crystal clear here, and I want you to see them. We cannot advance the work of God's kingdom by following the methods and agenda of the world. Number two, if we follow Jesus, listen carefully, we can expect to be hated by the world. Now, that has a lot to do with the posture that we take as followers of Jesus Christ. I think that's part of the reason that a lot of Christians very quickly revert to this whole idea of us versus them, us versus them. But is that how we're to view the world around us? Jesus is not deliberately withdrawing from the world. He will go up to the feast and and he will uh, clearly proclaim the gospel beautifully, publicly once he does. But too often I'm finding in our world today, especially Christians are ready to wear the hatred of the world as a badge of honor or even to label everything as persecution. If the world doesn't just readily adopt, you know, our values and biblical principles and all those things, suddenly we're being persecuted. When really here in America, we know very little of anything about true persecution. On the other side, many are ready to throw out, it seems, large sections of scripture if the world objects to them just to win the favor of the world. So we're not saying that either. We're not saying, hey man, we're going to just like, you know, cut things out of our bible because you know the world doesn't readily accept that or adopt it. So I understand the the tension here, the difficulty of being in the world but not of the world. So what we need to see in the life of Jesus is the truth that both of those approaches are really unfaithful and and worldly. This idea of us versus them Hey, let's, let's just so remove ourselves that we're not even able to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're, we're so focused on separation and, and being not, not even being in the world in which we live. And so both of those things are allowing the world to set the agenda and either accommodating to or reacting against the world in which we live. Jesus didn't go when his brothers told him to go, but neither did he react against their suggestion and absolutely refused to go. Instead, he kept his eyes on his heavenly father, careful to do his will. And he asks us to fix our eyes on him, eager to follow him, to do his will. So the third thing I want us to see here is the world's division. Jesus didn't go to the feast but he 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 did go to the feast but he but he went according to the father's time and not in a way that invited an open confrontation with religious leaders that's not because jesus was scared okay this is a stark contrast with the way that he will enter jerusalem in another six months if you follow the narrative here when the next passover comes around and his hour has come and he triumphantly enters amid a large crowd shouting hosanna remember And even though Jesus comes privately here, John tells us, he is known. He is being talked about, though he doesn't seek to make himself the center of attention at this point. The last time he had been in Jerusalem, he had dramatically healed a paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda. It's recorded for us in John chapter 5. People, again, have probably also heard about his feeding of the 5,000 and other remarkable stories of things that Jesus had done. Now you've got to remember, In the cultural context, news of those things, it would have been a little slower for it to travel. It's not as if someone was there shooting selfies at the feeding of the 5,000 with a hashtag five loaves, two fish. Hashtag 12 baskets left over. No, but news of these things was traveling and it was creating some division. You would think as amazing as these miracles were and the things that Jesus was teaching, people would have been like, yes, give us some more of that. But as always happens, the person of Jesus becomes a point of division and contention among the people. John tells us there was much muttering about him among the people. The term muttering or murmuring, it's used to indicate a secret debate or a quiet disagreement that can be intense, but is not necessarily openly public. So Jesus, understand this, is the most compelling, divisive person who has ever lived. He did more remarkable things than anyone else who ever lived. And he has been debated and discussed and either praised or rejected more than anyone else in history. Jesus himself said in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So he knows that his message, and he is a person, is divisive. He also said quite shockingly in Matthew chapter 10: Do not think that I have come to bring peace to this earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that's grossly misunderstood many times. But he's talking about how the gospel message itself is, is divisive. You either a follower of Jesus Christ or you are not. And a lot of people today are content to say, like some of the people in the crowd here, he's a good man, a good teacher. Let's face it, he's a revolutionary leader, but they are not ready to proclaim him as Lord. That's why you can have conversations with people and you can talk in general terms about faith and even about religion and you can even talk in general terms about God because in their mind, God may be just a simple higher power or a cosmic being out there that, you know, kind of set all this in motion. And so, but when you start talking about Jesus, that's a different story. It's one of the reasons I tell you: if you ever engage in a conversation with someone, maybe even on your doorstep, and you're uncertain if you're on the same page about the gospel, ask them what they believe about the deity of Jesus Christ. Or just simply say, what what do you believe about Jesus? We believe he's the central figure of scripture, but we believe more than that. We believe he is very God in the flesh. They may tell you, well, we believe that he's a created being. That tells you immediately that you're not on the same page. So we see it here that Jesus is a divisive figure. And what's interesting about this muttering and disagreement as you would think it would be this disagreement between or among believers versus unbelievers. But that's not really the case because, again, some are saying he's a good man, which is very different from saying he is Lord or he is Messiah. And I would guess that many of those same people would later become disciples, but they're not yet. Others are saying, no, 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 he's leading the people astray. The fact is they are both worldly responses to Jesus, and neither of these two groups, divided as they are, represent true disciples. And we know this because John says it was for fear of the Jews that they, no one spoke openly of him. Now in the world, there are many who think they like Jesus because they think Jesus stands for the things they like. Please hear what I just said. Because that may be some of you. There are people in the world today who think they like Jesus because they think Jesus stands for the things they like. They imagine a socialist Jesus or a a Republican Jesus even, or they think they like Jesus because he's for the common man or someone who needs to stick up for the little guy, or they selectively choose sayings of Jesus that sound nice, like turn the other cheek or love your enemies. And those things are true. Yes, Jesus said them. But for them, it's things they would like to see other people embrace while they themselves seldom embrace those truths. So you look around long enough and you'll find Jesus enlisted in support of almost any cause. But few of those who are ready to say he is Lord. It's one thing to say he's a good man. It's another thing entirely Different to say he is Lord, to profess him as Lord and follow him no matter what the cost. You'll find plenty of people today who distrust the establishment and so they like some kind of an anti establishment hero version of Jesus. They're not prepared to take up their cross and follow him. So the big question today is whom will you fear? whom will you fear? How how are you responding, reacting, engaging, interacting with the world around you? If you see those who do not embrace our biblical values and the truth of the gospel as enemies, how can you effectively reach them with the good news of the gospel? Now, I understand the concept theologically of someone who is outside of the faith being an enemy of the cross, we would say, but I'm talking about the way that we engage with the world. I mean, the truth is a lot of believers today can't even fathom the concept of sitting down and having lunch with someone who is diametrically opposed to the faith that we hold so dear. Just can't imagine that. And the reason is because many times you view it as a us versus them, when instead we should be willing to engage the world in which we live, firmly standing on the truth, but lovingly, lovingly introducing them to Jesus Christ and who he is, the good news of the gospel. What's keeping the crowd from openly discussing and debating Jesus here, who's Keeping many from professing faith and following Jesus, it's a very common, stubborn problem. It's the fear of man. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And The fundamental issue of the fear of man is that it is an absolute dividing line and obstacle to faith because we cannot at the same time truly fear God and fear man. We will ultimately live for one or the other. So in Matthew 10, Jesus again tells us, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Proverbs 29, the book of wisdom says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Those two verses lay out for us the clarity of our options. The only thing that can deliver us from the fear of man is fearing and trusting in the Lord. Nothing else will do. And the only way that we will fear and trust in the Lord is through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Transforming us. So I know, especially for those of you who are parents here today, there's this strange tension as your kids are in the world. We, we can't just live in a bubble, right? We can't live in just some like religious bubble. And so your kids are going to be, they're going to interact with friends and neighbors and even some family members and and, and those kinds of things, they're school classmates and all that. So, how do we encourage and challenge and teach our kids that we're to be in the world, engaging with the world, developing strategic friendships for the sake of the gospel without at the same time compromising? the things that we hold so dear. That's why today is so important as we pray. We pray for wisdom and discernment and using our circles and our spheres of influence for the sake of the gospel. And I would suggest that it's probably time for some of you to develop some friendships with some people who are not exactly like you because you feel really comfortable talking in a silo all the time. It'd be a great idea for you to invite a friend, a coworker that you know disagrees, has made it clear to you they are not a believer. Just invite them to a cup of coffee and have a winsome conversation and listen. Just listen. I'm not suggesting you embrace their values or embrace their beliefs, but I'm telling you, we we say this often, we believe so strongly here in relational evangelism. Many times it may take you months, if not years, to build a relationship with someone so they will finally have enough respect that they will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the truth is, many modern day Christians aren't willing to pay that kind of price. So we're going to close the service a little bit differently. I hear some kids out there in the foyer and they're about to make their way into the room. Uh, By the way, if you have kids today, you're going to be picking them up here, um, unless they are in the nursery across the street. Uh, But we're going to close the service today in a time of prayer. We're going to present Bibles to our first graders. Um, And so at this time, we're going to go ahead and invite the kids to come on in. If you want to go out there and bring them up, I think the first graders are going to come in first and get their Bibles. This would be a good time to thank our children's workers. yeah praise the Lord <laughs> Ms Emily and Ms Sharon do a great job of leading from the staff side of things, but they would be the first to tell you that um, they could never ever uh, do what they do without a army of volunteers uh, who serve in rotation each week in kids ministry and so uh, we want to pray over these kiddos and um Just entrust them to the Lord some. Maybe you've already started school. Some will be starting school this week if you're in a different district. uh, We have a number of homeschool students up here. And so we're going to be praying for each of you. And we're going to be praying for uh, our educators, our administrators, our home educators. Uh, And so let's all bow together in prayer uh, as we close our service today. And then our first graders will be given their Bibles uh, here in just a bit as well. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for a church family um, that is multi-generational. We have infants in our nursery today, um, all the way up to to dear folks in their 80s. And um, God, we just thank you for the seasons of life. Uh, We thank you for the opportunities that you put before us Uh, the places in which um, you you put us strategically for the sake of the gospel. Uh, And so we lift up each of these students, um, from the youngest who is just starting school this year to those who will be graduating soon, and even some in the room today who are about to head off to college. Uh, God, we pray that you would guide them in every way. Uh, As they engage with the world around them, help them to ask regularly, what would Jesus do in this case? What would Jesus do uh, to engage with uh, those around him? How would he be a friend? Uh, How would he come alongside those who are lonely or maybe those who are being bullied? Uh, How can we be like Jesus on our campus and uh, in our homes and in the workplace I pray for our educators, our administrators, those who lead in these areas. God, we commit them to you. We pray for a great year, Uh, not only of learning uh, math and English and social studies and science and all of those important things, but uh, learning to be more like you, Um, to live before those around us in a way that would point others to Jesus. So God, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, kids, you go ahead and stay right here for just a second, okay? We're going to let your parents kind of grab you from the front today, okay? Um, I'm going to ask you to stand, though. Um, And I want to remind you today, kids, I know you don't get to hear this every week because you're not always over here, but you are loved, okay? And I want you to know what I mean when I say that. Okay, I mean that this preacher loves you. I don't do it perfectly, but I love you. Okay, but more important than that, more important that you, that you know you're loved by Brother Mike is that you are loved by God. And he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place. And we want you to know and understand that and will follow Jesus all of your days, okay? You are an important part of this church family. From the youngest to the oldest, you're an important part of our church family, so we love you. We hope you have a great, great school year, okay? We want everybody to know. Can you say it with me? Can you say, on, on the count of three, say, you are loved, okay? Ready? One, two, three. You are loved. All right. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.